I want to read a story to you. Uh, you know, some stories are make-believe and full of hope, but uh, not rooted or grounded in reality. Uh, other stories, same thing. They deliver all kinds of hope, and they are rooted and grounded in reality. And the story I'm about to read you is just that kind of story. This is in the Gospel of Matthew, the very last chapter, and this is what we read. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of them that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you in the Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. (laughs) That's one of the most underwhelming greetings. I mean, right there. I mean, given the context, right? Greetings. (laughs) Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Let's pray. Father, This is a very special morning, and uh, some of us have dressed up for it. Others of us have been up early praying, thinking, reflecting. Uh, Others are here, and they're not even sure why, and we're just glad to have them. Uh, Maybe family brought them. Uh, Father, would you speak to each and every one of us, regardless uh, how we got here, why we're here? Uh, Would you talk to us in ways that only you can? For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've said it once, but we'll say it again. He is risen. risen So happy Easter to all of you who are celebrating this absolutely unique and unusual event that took place a little over 2,000 years ago. The resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know, even as we gather here this morning, so do millions and millions, actually probably billions of others. And some of those people are just brilliant individuals, just like you. Others are dumb as a brick, just like the person you came with, right? And everything else in between, right? In other words, all kinds of different people. Because that is really who we are as the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Some of us are wise and some of us are foolish and some are rich and some are poor and some are educated and some are not so much. But all of us, all of us recognize our need of a Savior. And we find that Savior in Jesus Christ. Now, we are also aware of the fact that the majority of people on the planet presently do not celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And that's either because they've never heard about Jesus 
his life, his death, his resurrection, or they have heard and they just don't believe it. And this morning, if that's you, I want to welcome you. I mean, we're glad you're here. You're probably here with relatives or people that invited you, and we're, we're just delighted you are here. Uh, but let me ask you, why? Um, have you thought about the fact that you are now surrounded by, oh, several hundred people who actually believe this stuff? Have you thought about that? A dead man coming back from the dead, and that man is not just a man, but is actually God. We have been worshiping that man this morning. That's crazy stuff. (laughs) Why would people believe such a thing? Well, this morning, many of us are not just quietly believing it. In some parts of the world, they are, because they have to. Because if they're too vocal about it or too obvious about it, they pay a very dear price. But this morning, we have the freedom to gather and not just quietly assert these things and believe these things and worship this man. We are actually celebrating it and declaring it. He is risen, as we have been saying. And I want to talk about why we do believe these things. And I'll just admit up front, it is a little strange, this belief that Christians have. No religious leader in the history of mankind ever claimed to know more about life or more about death than Jesus did. In fact, the validity of everything that Jesus taught pretty much stands and falls on whether or not Jesus actually did come back from the dead. That's how important this Sunday and its content really is. Most of us here uh, believe this to be true, and therefore we celebrate it. And I hope this encourages you as we reflect together about the resurrection this morning. And I hope this strengthens your faith, your faith, and I hope that this enhances your Easter celebration. And for those of you who are doubtful about the validity, the truth, the reality of the resurrection, I hope that this time that we spend this morning just kind of makes you think, just gets the gears turning. Because here's the deal. Jesus' early disciples actually claimed that they had seen Jesus resurrected. They claimed to have touched him. They claimed to have talked with him. They claimed to have eaten with him and prayed with him all after he came back from the dead. And they were either right, of course, or they were wrong. One of the fallacies of thought very prevalent in our day and age is the idea that all religions are pretty much alike, pretty much the same. They teach pretty much the same. They all lead to pretty much the same place. All religions uh, are also uh, more and more becoming in the mindset of our culture kind of a bad thing. They lead people to believe things that are not really good. Well, friends, I'm going to assert this morning that that is just dead wrong. One of the things you need to understand about Christianity is that it didn't just kind of pop out of nowhere when Jesus showed up. This faith called Christianity is actually a fulfillment of a very long series of promises that had been made by God. Uh, You see, roughly 2,000 years ago, there was a little country called Israel where people were living under a very harsh Roman rule. A sizable percentage of Jewish people were waiting for someone to come, a leader, a liberator. And they had a name for him. They called him the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one, the one who would be anointed of God to do the impossible. And they believed that he would set them free. They believed that he would bring God's blessing to God's 
people. And that he would bring back what they referred to as the kingdom of God here on earth. A good and right and just kingdom. Now in that day, there were people in that part of the world who were leading freedom movements. And some were thought to be the Messiah. Some of these freedom leaders. There's a Harvard professor named Harvey Cox. And he says that there were at least six such Messiah candidates who lived all within the space of about 100 years of Jesus. And these Messiah figures usually called people to to places of deeper faith, deeper trust, deeper belief in God, uh, reminding them of the the promises of God to to liberate his people one day and establish his kingdom. They would remind that that, uh, God had a plan for his people, even though they were currently living in harsh, uh, oppressive circumstances. And uh, these people, these messiahs, very often were also at the head uh, of leading a revolt. The problem was every one of these individuals ended up dead. That was the problem. They were killed by uh, the Roman government or a a rival Jewish faction. And, And always what that meant was very clear to everyone. What that meant was that their leader, the one they thought just might be the messiah, was not the Messiah. Uh, If the man that you thought was the Messiah, if that man got killed, well, you were wrong. That's how they knew. You needed to look for another Messiah. And this happened in a number of cases. The leader died, so his followers, of course, they, they missed him. I mean, they still loved him. His words could still inspire them. You could believe that he was alive somewhere in the presence of God, perhaps, but you didn't follow him anymore Because he was dead. No one followed a dead Messiah, you see. In the middle of all of this came this man, Jesus, who was at first a carpenter, and then itinerant treat teacher, preacher, rabbi. And his followers thought that he was different than other rabbis. In fact, they were convinced he was entirely unique. He also talked about the coming of God's kingdom, just like others talked about the kingdom. But he spoke about it in unique ways, in very different ways. He was oddly inclusive when he talked about the kingdom of God in the sense that uh, he made it clear that women were going to participate in this kingdom, just like men did. He, He talked about Gentiles. He talked about Samaritans. They would come into this kingdom just like the Jews would. He talked to the sick, the lame, the crippled, the blind, and he gave them hope in addition to healing them because he told them they would be loved into the kingdom of God as well. He even talked to Roman soldiers about coming into the kingdom of God. He would talk about the great commandments, just like other rabbis would. The commandment to love God, uh, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And all the rabbis, of course, would comment on these things and teach on these things. But Jesus did it with a unique kind of, of authority, if you will, a familiarity with the God who gave us these commands. And Jesus also, it was reported, did some amazing things. As many of you know, he healed the sick and the lame and the cripple and the blind, and he even raised the dead. So as you might imagine, he got his his followers' hopes way, way up. (laughs) He was not an ordinary rabbi. And then one day, he gets killed. He gets crucified by Rome. And so the message was very, very clear. Although he had been an incredible teacher, a really uh, unusual uh, rabbi, 
He's not the Messiah. And that's what his own disciples thought. His closest followers were obviously devastated by the fact that he had been killed, hung on a cross, and died. Uh, They were also petrified about what was going to happen to them now that their leader, the one they thought might be the Messiah, was gone. There was no record of any of them ever trying to follow a a new or a, a different leader, a different Messiah. Instead, what they did is one of two things. They either scattered or they hid. That's what they were doing. Because Jesus was not the one. Because Jesus, their leader, their teacher, their rabbi was dead. You see, the Messiah would not die. That was a key component of being the Messiah, they thought. But then in a very short time, and this is just a matter of historical record, the disciples, instead of scattering and instead of hiding, they regather. It's almost like they they recommit. They stop hiding and they start boldly proclaiming. And they devote their lives to spreading a message. And their message was not just some kind of a vague message, God is love or things of that nature. Although they, of course, believed that God was love. They They had interacted with the God who was love. Their message was not Jesus is a great moral teacher, although he was certainly that. Their message was that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. That he died on a cross, that he was buried in a tomb. Yes, absolutely, all of that is true. But then on the third day, he returned to life. And they went around everywhere telling everyone who would listen that they had seen Jesus after he had been crucified, buried, and after he was dead. They told everyone, they had heard him teach, they had eaten with him, they had touched him. He is the Messiah. That was their message. The Apostle Paul wrote these words about Jesus. This is a letter he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, writes Paul. Now, Paul wrote those words about 20 years or so after Jesus' death. All four of the gospels we know were written about 30 to 60 years after Jesus' death. In other words, the point is, while eyewitnesses were around, while some of those 500 could still say, I saw him, I ate with him, I saw him after he rose from the dead. And here's what's interesting. Jesus' disciples spent the rest of their lives proclaiming that message, oftentimes at great personal expense, sometimes going without food, without sleep, sometimes uh, running from those who were pursuing them. They were ridiculed, beaten, run out of towns very often, often in prison, sometimes even executed simply for their faith. Why? Why did they do that? Why did they change from hiders to heralds? Why? What caused this huge transformation? And really, there's only one explanation that makes any sense, regardless whether you or I believe the resurrection happened or not. One thing is absolutely certain. They they believed it, right? They believed it. They were absolutely convinced at a very fundamental, deep level, a level deep enough to transform and change them. 
And that's actually what real Christians believe. This doctrine right here is so important to understanding the life, the ministry, the reason for which Jesus came. And that little movement, movement of Christians over time, of course, uh, impacted the entire world. Think about that. That is actually quite significant. If you had lived in the first century AD, I'm just curious, who would you think was more likely to survive? This little ragtag group called Christians or the Roman Empire? Who would you vote for? Who would you think would survive? Well, guess what? Today, there are about 2.3 billion Christians and there's no Roman Empire. So how in the world, how in the world did that happen? Well, Christians know. You see, it happened because the tomb really was empty. And Jesus really did come back from the dead. And hundreds and hundreds of people really were eyewitnesses. And they wrote and they told their stories. We have them in the form of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have them in the form of New Testament letters, epistles that are written to to, uh, people who follow Jesus. And it tells this story. And it looks at the life and the teaching the death, the resurrection of Jesus, like it's a a gym, looking at it from many different angles, many different facets. Now, many back then, and even today, as was already pointed out earlier, uh, tried to discredit these ideas, this story about Jesus and his resurrection. In fact, they argued that people were just badly mistaken. They were just wrong. Some people argued that the tomb was not really empty at all. It was just a mistake of location. Uh, The argument was made that the women had gone to the tomb, uh, but they had actually gone to the wrong tomb. That's an idea that somebody put forth rather early on. It's an idea that keeps resurfacing too. About 100 years ago, there was an individual, Kirasoff Lake, who wrote a whole book Uh, on the subject of how the women just went to the uh, tomb that was the wrong tomb, and that was the argument. Now, I think that's unlikely uh, for a whole lot of reasons, but uh, one is, uh, let me just ask you, uh, which gender typically, when lost, has too much pride to stop and ask for directions? (laughs) Men, right? But what we find in John chapter 20, uh, Mary goes to the tomb and she, she is actually looking for the body of Jesus. And when she gets there, Jesus' body is not in the tomb. Well, she's not satisfied with that. She's going to ask questions. And what she does is she bumps into someone who she mistakes for the uh, gardener. It's actually Jesus. But she asks him a question. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. You see, Mary is not afraid to ask for help, to ask for directions to find the body of Jesus. And uh, that's just one of many reasons why this, this whole notion really doesn't hold up. Another one is, if you know that area where Jesus had been placed in a tomb, it's, it's not a, a cemetery like Forest Lawn or, or Arlington National Cemetery where one upon another grave looks exactly like the other one and, and there's thousands and thousands of them. It's, it's not that kind of thing at all. Where Jesus uh, was laid in a tomb, a crypt, uh, it, was a, it was a distinct tomb. It was hand-carved for this specific family. Joseph of Arimathea was the owner, easy to find. Jesus was buried in a well-known private burial cave quite identifiable. 
In fact, if there was any actual controversy in that day, somebody could have very easily gone to the correct grave and just said, well, here, here it is, here's the body, still in the grave. But that never happened, of course. In the records that we have, even in that day, there was a dispute about the tomb being empty, but nobody, nobody argued that the women had gone to the wrong tomb because they could have just easily gone and checked that out. Now, some people did argue a little differently. Some thought that maybe on the cross, Jesus didn't actually die, uh, that he was just temporarily, uh, he, he lost consciousness. And later, when he was laid into the cool of a tomb, a cave, uh, he revived. This is sometimes called the swoon theory. Maybe you've heard of it. The problem with this theory is the Roman soldiers. You see, believe me, they knew what death looked like. They, they were experts at this. If a prisoner was to be executed, and if that prisoner escaped, guess who was executed in that prisoner's place? The Roman soldiers watching that prisoner, that person being executed. So they were highly motivated to make sure the crucified guy was the dead guy. And beyond that, assume for a moment that the swoon theory was true. Jesus didn't uh, really die. So he had just swooned, and later he revived in the cool of the tomb. That certainly raises some questions. Jesus, we know, was beaten repeatedly. He was deprived of sleep the night before. He carried a cross until he literally collapsed under its weight. He hung on a cross for hours. He had a spear uh, jabbed into his side. Nails had been driven through his hands and through his feet. His body was wrapped tightly in linens. In fact, we're told in John 19 uh, that there were 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes rubbed into those cloths, those linens. And then he was laid in a tomb on Friday, no food, no water, until Sunday. The swoon theory would tell us that somehow, even under those conditions, Jesus survived. And then Sunday morning, he gets up, finds some way to move a very large stone, and then this swoon Jesus, beaten, bloodied, bandaged, pierced, and pale, somehow convinced his followers that he had conquered, that's the key word, that he had conquered sin and death. And that's a little unlikely, I think, given those circumstances. He might have been able to inspire some anger. He might have been able to inspire some pity, some sadness, but he never could have inspired anything like the courageous resurrection faith that we see in the lives of Jesus' followers. In fact, I, I kind of wonder if Thomas himself wasn't one of the earliest swoon theory advocates or uh, people that kind of wondered, did Jesus really die? Is he really dead? Thomas, you remember, you can read all about it in John 20. Uh, the other disciples had seen Jesus and they had all reported these instances to Thomas. And Thomas said, I, I won't believe it. I can't believe it. Unless I can touch the wounds in his hand and the wounds in his feet for myself, I just can't believe it. And so it's actually eight days later, Jesus shows up where the disciples are gathered. This time Thomas is there and, and uh, Jesus says to Thomas, believe, you need to believe. Touch my hands, put your hand in my side where the spear has pierced me. And you remember Thomas's response? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. 
And Thomas was exactly right. He, he went from unbelief and doubt, perhaps numerous ideas circling in his head, thinking it's just not possible. Dead people don't come back to life. That's not possible. So, so unless I see him, I, I can't possibly believe. He goes from that point instantly to the place of my Lord and my God. And so for reasons like that, the swoon theory has really not held up well over the years. Some people have argued then that even today, um, the disciples stole the body. And then they made up the resurrection story. There's a book uh, that was written called The Passover Plot. This is back in the 60s. But it's a, it's a story that many others put forth many years earlier. Uh, it always crops up. And it's just this idea that the, the disciples stole the body. That's why it was not, no longer in the tomb. And the biggest difficulty with this theory is, is just trying to figure out why they would steal the body. Remember, the last thing Jesus' disciples anticipated was his death. This was not a plan that they had. Nobody was looking for that. They were looking for victory over their enemies, the Romans. They were looking for Israel's greatness to be restored. They were hopeful that God's kingdom would come. Uh, th these were some of their agendas. The death of the leader, the death of the Messiah was definitely not part of anyone's plan. In fact, none of the disciples were very clear at all about this thing of the cross. Jesus is going to come and die to pay for sins. That was something they, they really only fully began to grasp after Jesus would, had uh, been risen from the dead. Death was not expected. It's for reasons like this that the stolen body theory is just, it hasn't held up well over the years. Some people have argued against the resurrection in different ways. More recently, uh, these were not ideas in the early centuries, but uh, they have said that the resurrection is kind of a metaphor. And, and really where this comes from is if you're going to start from a place of denying the supernatural, well, there's a whole lot about Jesus, his life, and his death, and of course his resurrection that you can't accept because ipso facto from the start you deny any possibility of the supernatural. And that's where this theory comes from. After the crucifixion, uh, they would say it's Jesus' teachings that came alive to his followers, not his body, not him himself. It was his vision, the spirit of the way that he lived his life that lived on in the hearts of his followers. But as a matter of history, this explanation simply doesn't work to explain what happened in the lives of Jesus' follower. followers. If your guy died, again, he's not the Messiah. Everybody knew it. You could be inspired by his life. You could love his memory. You could appreciate his teachings. You could believe that his spirit was with God. But as far as being the Messiah, no. Because he's dead. And so what do you do? Well, you go home or you look for a new Messiah. The last thing you do is make up a story that he has come back to life and then give your life to defend a story that you know is not true. People will die for their beliefs and do all the time. People will even die for mistaken beliefs and do all the time. But not many will die for what they know absolutely is a lie. Sometimes in our day, people think, well, you know, that was a long time ago, 2,000 years ago. I mean, people back then, pre-scientific, uh, people were not well-educated back then. It was easier for people to be fooled, to think that things like a resurrection can happen. And let me just point out, that's a little bit silly. Saying that Jesus rose from the dead was just as controversial 2,000 years ago as it is today. 
for the same reason, the simple reason that people have known and uh, have always known that dead people don't come back to life. They just don't. That's why death is the great enemy of the human race. That's why death is your and my great enemy because people who die don't come back from the dead. The fact that dead people tend to stay dead is precisely why this claim has always been so hugely controversial, both in the first century and even still today. It's also precisely why Jesus' disciples changed so abruptly. They went from fearful to fearless, cowering to courageous, doubters to people who were declaring the message almost overnight. Uh, We read these verses earlier. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He said, if Christ has not been raised from the grave, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. He said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. In other words, it didn't really happen, but it's okay to believe that because it helps you live a better life. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. Why? Because we believe a lie. And so the point is, Whether or not you agree with it, whatever you might think about it, you can't possibly argue that the resurrection was something like a metaphor. That it's just some kind of optional part of the message that gave birth to this thing that that we are, the church. The resurrection is, in fact, the cornerstone of our faith, the cornerstone of Christianity. Without that message, the church does not exist. If Christ be not raised from the dead, we make no sense. It's just that simple. You see, Christians look at our world and we realize that things are not right. Do you realize that? Things are not right? Life is not supposed to be the way life is. We look around and the world is full of injustice and you can't turn the news on and not see injustice happening in Ukraine. The world is full of poverty. The world is full of greed. The world is full of things like racism and cruelty, broken relationships, hatred, self-centeredness. This stuff, none of it is right. None of it is okay. Now, what's more, when I look inward and examine myself, I discovered that I'm not right. I'm not okay. And Christians believe that the point of Jesus' resurrection was that God was now going to make things right. And he started by conquering death itself, our greatest enemy. And he means someday to fix everything that's broken, everything, everything out there, everything in here, make it new, make it fresh. God had been promising his people for several thousand years that one day this messed up world and this messed up me would be set right by him, by Jesus. And with Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it started in earnest Jesus has overcome our ultimate enemies of sin and death. He is going to restore things like love and peace and joy and kindness and goodness and righteousness. Jesus' kingdom has come. It's living in the hearts and minds of people who follow him. 
but it's still also yet to come. It's not here in its fullness. That's why we, his followers, sometimes don't look a lot like his followers. You know, we lack love or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or self-control. But Jesus and his spirit and his word are active in us, changing us, transforming us, making us more like himself. That will continue until he returns or until we die. Jesus' kingdom has come and is still coming. Nobody thought it was going to start like this. No one was expecting this plan that has been unfolding. But I'll tell you what, it's a plan that's working. It really is. Billions of people have put their faith in Jesus. And who knows how many more will be added to the family today? Who knows? Maybe even you. And if you do, if you do put your faith and your trust in Jesus, there's all kinds of promises that you become an inheritor of. One is just this. When you put your faith in Jesus, he puts his spirit in you. And the spirit goes to work doing all kinds of things. He comes to life in you. You become a new creature created in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You're given new power, new identity, new eyes to see and new ears to hear what God is doing and what God is saying. Suddenly, you maybe have read the Bible before and it made no sense. But when the spirit of God is living in you, it will. Believe me, it will. You see, it's true. God's kingdom has come and is coming. The resurrection was and is proof of that fact. The conquering conviction is that Jesus is alive. The conquering conviction that a Jesus follower has, the transforming conviction is that Jesus is alive. Alive. It is what turned a cowering band of disappointed followers into a community that would defy all social divisions, such that in the church there are men and women, and Jew and Gentile, and black and white, and rich and poor, and educated and uneducated, broken, fallen sinners of every description adopted into the family that was created by Jesus. A family that would love and serve each other, even give away their possessions if that would help. The family did that then. The family still does that today. The family would rejoice in persecution, sing hymns in the face of prison and death, and they would tell others about Jesus, his teaching, his power, his life, his love, his mercy, and yes, his resurrection. And both then and now when people hear that message, people honest enough to admit they don't have all the answers especially the big answers they need. People honest enough to admit they don't have it all figured out, they can't make it all work. People just like us, well, those kinds of people decide to follow Jesus and they join the family. They always have and they always will. And here's the deal, friends. You know, we gather today to give thanks. Our God sent his divine son from up there to down here to rescue us, to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, and then to burst out of a tomb to prove that everything he did and everything he said and everything he promised is true. 
Jesus told his followers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also told them, I am coming again. And today we, we await for that return. That's the next big item on the redemptive agenda when Jesus comes back. And that's what we believe. And that's what we celebrate. And that's what we know is true. And that's what gives our life meaning, direction, and purpose. And that's what Christianity, that's what makes Christianity so different from every other religion. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. He is risen. Amen. If you want to know more about Jesus, well, talk to someone that you, with whom you came. That'd be a great place to start. Or you've got a card in front of you, uh, in, in a seat in front of you. It's called a connection card. You can, you can take that and put your name on it and tell us how to contact you. Tell us you would like to know more about it and we'll get in touch with you. There's also something coming uh, next week. It's called Starting Point, which is a good place for you. If you're wondering, how do I enter into this, this thing of following Jesus? What does that look like? And how do I find out more about him? Well, Starting Point is a great thing to uh, be a part of. And that happens next week uh, in the second service. The point is just this. We want to do everything we can to answer your questions and to help you discover the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. And that truth is that he is risen. Pray with me. Father God, we rehearse this every single year. We anticipate the celebration of reflecting together about this unique event, the resurrection. And we are thankful we are thankful that the life and death of Jesus secures life and victory over death for us. My prayer this morning, God, is for anyone who's here and just not sure about these things. I pray that you would be speaking to them and calling them to yourself. And, and I pray, Father, that if there's anything that we as a church, as a people, uh, can do to answer their questions, to help them in their journey, discover who Jesus is, then God, help us do that. And I pray that you would continue to call people to yourself and convince them of the truth of the resurrection. And for those of us, God, who believe this and know this, may it empower us to change, to be like the early disciples, transformed, bold in our witness, loving in our relationships, forgiving, merciful, because you are forgiving and merciful to us. Father, we celebrate the truth that Jesus, our Savior, our God, is today risen, risen from the dead. It's in his name we pray, amen.